Welcome to Four Questions Podcast, Episode 5. On this episode, I'm joined by Father Peter DeFonts. He's the priest of the local Greek Orthodox Church, St. Andrews. Um, we had a wonderful conversation. We spoke for a while before we started recording and for a while longer after we recorded. And it was a, a lot of fun for me, as, as you hear in some of my other conversations. I greatly enjoy Eastern faith and um, speaking about orthodoxy. So that, that was a lot of fun. As you listen to this episode and go through the upcoming weeks, feel free to uh, check us out online, fourquestionspodcast.com. There you can find blog posts and similar content. Check us out on social media on Twitter at four underscore podcast, Facebook at facebook.com slash fourquestionspodcast. And now we have a Patreon. So check us out at patreon.com slash fourquestionspodcast. In the coming weeks, there's going to be more tiers added uh, with more perks and, and whatnot. So uh, support the show that that's something that can help the show grow and change and be something even better that is uh, not that I'm not able to do <laughs> just as myself and a way that you can help if you don't want to support the show financially is to review and rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen that really helps get the show uh, into some other people's hands which is a lot of fun um, because it means that more people are having the conversation. So without further ado, uh, Father Peter DeFonts. It's Vespers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, he, but he always has such a, an interesting perspective. And I think that the Eastern churches have maintained a really beautiful and fascinating, um, train of thought from the beginning that I, I I think one of one of the Roman saints from recent years St. John Paul II was right the West has a lot to learn from our other lung of the church you know well I think that probably everybody needs to talk together more mm-hmm. absolutely well we'll go ahead and get into the, the interview sure. portion yes <clears throat> um, and it's uh like you said, you'd listen to some, so it's it's fairly yes. I, I'm familiar easy. with the, the questions and some of the the witty repartee and back <laughs> and forth and all of that. Um, but uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, if you if you wouldn't mind leading us in in a prayer. O heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present, filling all things treasury of blessings and giver of life come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls O good one thank you father um so as as is tradition before we get into the questions um for myself and for the listeners if you wouldn't mind giving just a a brief introduction to, to you and some of your your background sure well, uh, my name is Father Peter DeFonce, and I am the priest of uh, St. Andrew Greek Orthodox Church in Lubbock, Texas. I have been here with my wife, uh, Nadia, since February of 2007, so we're coming up on our 12th year, and we have two children, 
a seven-year-old daughter and a newly born uh, daughter. Um, Wonderful. How old? Tanya is just, she's, let's see, Tatiana is coming up on three months wow. and Lydia Ann is seven. Three so <laughs> we've uh, we've been growing in little bits and pieces here as, as we've been here in Lubbock now for a while. Um, I'm originally from Schenectady, New York, which for those of you who don't know, uh, geography outside of Texas is <laughs> not Texas. Yeah. Um, I am a Yankee. Sorry. Um, That's okay. <laughs> this has been a, an experience and a challenge for me. Um, getting to learn all about a different way of life that, mm -hmm. that people have in a place where I do not have roots. Yeah. One of the most difficult things I think about being a transplant from a different part of the country mm -hmm. is trying to create relationships when you don't already have them handed to you right. either by birth or um, friendship or whatever uh, to learn to start all over again uh, in a territory where I am very much an outsider and indifferent um, and new to people. Yeah, well, I, a lot of people here have zero contact with orthodoxy. Right, sure. and they see me going out in public wearing a cross like this, and their first question is, Father, do you use that to uh, exercise <laughs> demons and, and to kill vampires? And I usually tell them yes, because it, it tends to shorten conversations <laughs> uh, but yes we uh, it is something that is unusual for the people in West Texas and mm -hmm. I've had a lot of uh, interesting conversations uh, and people I've gotten to know over several years because of their um, interest in learning something more about Orthodox Christianity and what mm -hmm. the Church of the East is uh, what it means how we uh, uh, interpret things and so I've I went to school in Washington DC uh, for my undergraduate at Georgetown I got my seminary education in New York State uh, at a little Russian seminary in Crestwood New York just north of the city um, and I have uh, my first assignment was in El Paso Wow. Uh, at a Syrian church called St. George mm -hmm. and it was about a year later that I was sent here. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am a priest of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America under Metropolitan Isaiah and as foreign leadership goes our ultimate um, hierarchical authority is the ecumenical patriarch mm -hmm. uh, Bartholomew I of Constantinople. I've, I've seen a few interviews with him in I appreciate so thoroughly his humility. I saw, I think it was uh, some 60 Minutes or something or another, and you know, he asked, "Well, how should I address you?" And he just said, "Bartholomew." <laughs> you know? And I thought, well, that's just beautiful because we we oftentimes. And I think it's for the better, but we, we have a lot of formality. And he, he seems to be okay with setting it down for a little bit, you know? Um, and I, it was exciting to see him. He walked through a courtyard, and there were people there, and he just walked up and, you know, gave everyone blessings, and it was beautiful. Uh, I, 
I appreciate him a lot. <laughs> I think one of the things that he's representing when he does things like that is uh, the principle of balance, which we consider so important in the Orthodox Church. Absolutely. We come from a background that has quite a bit of formality. Uh, we have canon laws, mm -hmm. we have liturgical order, we have forms of address, uh, the way that uh, clergy uh, wear certain kinds of clothing in public and, and uh, vestments during liturgies, and we have all sorts of different uh, constructions. Uh, to come from that position where everybody expects that down to a place of a little more informality is, is a sense of balance. It's mm -hmm. to prevent being rigid and lifeless and uh, you know sucking the, the spirit out of a person's relationship with someone else. Um, but I would say in the same vein that in an era in American society where there is so much informality almost to the point of being irreverence, uh, lack of respect, mm -hmm. or even acknowledgement of authority, um, it needs to go the other way as well. The Absolutely. Orthodox Christian would be the first person to try and instill a sense of formality, respect, discipline, oh, yeah. and order where it has been almost entirely lost. So really, we, we're always trying to find balance yeah, that, between the different sides and I, I think that's the the word that I would want to bring out of that is that it's we're somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. yeah absolutely the thing that led to a lot of my conversion was craving reverence and, and craving structure um, you know the the ritual of you know, crossing yourself as you enter the chapel, and you know, in the in our Roman tradition, the genuflecting at the at the end of the pew, and, and you know, uh, reverencing the Blessed Sacrament and the Tabernacle, and, and all these motions, you know. Um, and I don't know as much about uh, divine liturgy, but I. I the kind of obsessive person that I've watched a lot of videos, you know, um, if, if I'm aware of, yeah. of, because I know the, the Eastern, the Orthodox calendar is a little different than ours. And so yeah. usually on Orthodox Christmas, I'll watch, I'll like get online and watch some divine liturgy from Orthodox Christmas, you know, and uh, one of the things that struck me with, with this, um, level of, of formality was and I think you, you hit it on the head when you say it's, it's a balance because as you watch these people there's a lot going on there's a lot more response um, for the for the lay people as they're participating in the liturgy but it's also so effortless you know these people who've um, woven their faith mm -hmm. into their lives it's, it's effortless for them to uh, I saw uh, one of the things was that like they pick up their cross from the ground, you know, and, yes. and, I, th and I thought that's a common practice, you know, outright bending over it is a, is for a lot of Christians, especially in America who don't have 
really a physical practice in their faith, that is a, a large motion, but it's so effortless and, and so Yes, we have seamless. several uh, full body prostrations that are done at certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. And even when we aren't doing those, we're often doing bows from the waist where, mm -hmm. uh, as you had noted, the person uh, makes the sign of the cross with their fingers and they go and they touch the ground and then they inscribe the cross upon themselves. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a common gesture that you will often see uh, in some ethnic traditions a little bit more frequently than mm -hmm. others, but uh, because there are some cultural differences, orthodoxy is uh, a global phenomenon. There oh, are absolutely. you know people all over the world that do this, and sometimes they do them in little different ways. Right. But you will notice whenever you go into an orthodox church anywhere in the world, you will quickly recognize certain things that would set that apart for a person going there that says, okay, well, I know what this is because they do the same things here that right. we do. Yeah, I have a friend who's, who's Ethiopian Orthodox, mm -hmm. former co-worker, uh, and I would always, we got along well because not a lot of people know about Orthodoxy, and so, um, and not a lot of people know that there's a difference, and so he, he tended to appreciate our conversation, um, and we would you know, talk about the fasts and the feasts yes. and, and, um, it was always so wonderful to hear him, you know, and he's reflecting on home and he, he was, there's a lot of things that he was missing about home, but most of it was his church. Um, right. And, and that, like you said, the, the, it's his, his culture that is a large part of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the things that set the Ethiopian Orthodox apart from the Coptic Orthodox, is this cultural and geographical expression mm. that is is really unique and beautiful. Like you said, roots. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and jump into question yes. one. Um, so you you mentioned. Uh, the, the Greek Orthodox Church and um, that that is your faith, but would you mind contextualizing the differences between some Orthodoxy, um, some Orthodox churches and kind of how the uh, not splits necessarily because they're all in communion, but rather the the things that have made them unique and have led to kind of the, like you said, the global phenomenon of Orthodoxy. Well, it's funny that you began uh, by saying that they're all in communion. Sadly, at this point in time, we're not all in communion. Interesting. Recently, there was a um, fairly well-publicized uh, break informal communion between the Patriarchate of Moscow and all Russia mm. and the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople. Mm. My hierarch, the Ecumenical Patriarch, has been asked to come to 
some kind of a solution for the, the uh, continuous problems of the Orthodox Christians in the Ukraine, mm -hmm. both by various members of their church and by the Ukrainian government. Mm -hmm. And in dealing with that situation, a um, kind of a contest developed sure, <laughs> between sure. the Patriarchate of Moscow, which has for approximately 400 years been primarily handling the business of the church in the Ukraine as mm. a neighbor, sister, and daughter church, and the ecumenical patriarchate that, according to the canons of the Orthodox Church, tends to have a maternal role, if you will, over sure. the churches as a whole, um, that there should be a presiding presence of some kind mm -hmm. um, that is always sort of behind everything, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so the ecumenical patriarchate and the Church of Moscow were... Uh, trying to decide what to do about this, and unfortunately, it, it became a, a really terrible situation. And so, at this point, we have people right here in my own parish community mm. that technically have been told by their hierarchical leadership they cannot receive communion in this church. So, we have an argument going on overseas between two ancient patriarchates, mm -hmm. the ecumenical patriarchate was uh, more or less established in the 4th and 5th centuries mm -hmm. as the Roman Empire uh, moved from Rome to Constantinople to right. avoid various attacks before Rome was sacked. And the patriarchate of Moscow has been an independent unity since about 1589, wow. about 600 years after the first Slavic Christians uh, entered the church. Mm -hmm. So this has been going on for a long time, and while it looks like, oh, isn't that just foreign affairs? No, it actually boils down to the situation here. Uh, we have a feud of sorts between what should be fraternal organizations mm -hmm. uh, loving each other in a bond of unity for whom the reception of Holy Communion and ministering at the altar during the divine liturgy are the two greatest signs of togetherness and fellowship and right. worship that could ever happen. And it's been torn asunder mm. by the fallenness and, and darkness and the anger and ego and pride and bitterness of, of human beings that mm. however much we struggle to attain the likeness of God in Jesus, mm -hmm. We, we fail, and sometimes we fail in a very public way. Uh, when the bread and the wine are consecrated in an Orthodox divine liturgy, there is a prayer that says, Send down, O Lord, thy most Holy Spirit upon us mm -hmm. and upon these gifts here set forth. Mm. Communion is a connection between the people in the church that through the bread and the wine, which become Christ's body and blood in our understanding of, of the sacred tradition, mm -hmm. it brings the people back more fully into the union into which they were baptized. Absolutely. So to cut somebody off from ministering with you at the holy altar and to not allow that person to receive the Lord's gifts 
is already saying that we are not in communion with you theologically, that we are not brothers and sisters right now. Which is painful. It is a painful divorce. There are people, my wife's brother is a priest in Russia, and I'm not permitted right now to go to churches in Russia uh, that are connected with, with him, and I could not serve with him, and I could not receive communion with him. Uh, so this has long-lasting tendrils that go out in every right. direction. It's a terrible break. And I think when we look at, you know, dating back to the schism and all, all of the, the issues in the church, I think it's important to look at, at the theological things and say, well, we got to get to the bottom of this. But I, over the last couple of years, have longed for, for communion but within the whole Christian church because it is, it is uncomfortable a lot of times because... And it should be. It, it should be. As, as a person who, you know, I believe strongly in, in my faith and I'll have, you know, friends who uh, we agree on almost everything. You know, and the little things we should agree on. <laughs> but I have some friends who've gone to mass with me, and it—it's always hard to say we can't receive communion. <laughs> you know, that—that's one of the, yes. the the toughest things to say. And I'm, I'm not saying that we should open communion to everyone, because there is a a level of contract involved, right? You. If you don't believe that it's really the body and blood, that is a very that's you know? a very important thing. But um, between you know, orthodoxy and, and, and Catholicism and all the different you know churches and apostolic succession, I always find myself thinking, man, I I pray for the day that we that we can all um, celebrate the Eucharist together. Well, you know, it will not happen before the faith that they share is truly in common. Mm -hmm. If it's possible within the Orthodox Church where people have the exact same theological beliefs for people to be out of communion mm. and to not be able to receive together at the same altar because of a break in the familial relations between two patriarchs uh, halfway across the world, how much more so is it not yet possible for people that do not have the same theological teachings and understandings oh, sure. to be able to come together? You cannot give... Let me put that another way. The understanding in the Orthodox Church of what we call the Holy Mysteries, which is anything that would be treated as a, as a manner of receiving grace... Mm -hmm is that it is based on a person's relationship with God and mm -hmm. our relationship with other persons. And it also involves the, the mediation of the church itself as right. uh, the source from whom these, these blessings come to us. So when it comes to the reception of Holy Communion, the kinonia must exist first as a freely right. uh, accepted, voluntary submission of our egos right. to what the churches say this is the apostolic tradition mm -hmm. that was given by Christ after his resurrection to the apostles mm -hmm. and until people are truly grounded in this you will find that the brotherhood that is required 
to receive communion together does not yet exist. Yeah. And as long as ego, pride, and selfishness intervene to prevent people from willingly accepting things that they may not understand and probably will never understand, mm -hmm. uh, we are not going to be able to truly be in communion. It is not a sacred biscuit of some sort right. that one pulls down from on high to to provide a unity that isn't there. So I think this is a it is a sad reality in the modern world, but it also tells us that these divisions of whatever kind that exist between churches and communities, mm -hmm. uh, however close or far they may be from each other, have more to do with the structure of um, like marriage and divorce mm -hmm. than, than actually being part of separate groups or separate bodies and institutions. Sure. Orthodox Christians often have this sense of being divorced from Western Christianity and the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant children that have come from the Roman Church in history. Mm -hmm. it, there is a common affinity and a kinship and a celebrated memory of a unified past but unfortunately now, you know, down the road, yeah. there is still that same tension that you see, for instance, if you um, bring people together that were separated. Mm -hmm. I had to go to court recently to sort of be a spiritual support for uh, someone who was involved in a rather bitter, acrimonious divorce case. Mm -hmm. And to see the two people that used to live together and share love in the same home separated by attorneys and benches and leather mm -hmm. having uh, their various sides going at each other like that to mm -hmm. vie for territory uh, and the sadness and bitterness that comes where love was supposed to be the unifying factor mm -hmm. it is a it is a terrible thing yeah. to realize that that communion itself has been broken you can no more give the body and blood of Christ to people that cannot stand being with each other in the same room, uh, let alone being truly in communion, than you can ask two people that are no longer married to each other to have intimate relations in order to make it easier for them to come back together. Right. It isn't there. It is not an act or a deed or a thing or an object that drops down from God on high to create a non-existent bond of love and unity and fellowship where the sacrifice of ego mm -hmm. is the absolute first order of business. Love Absolutely. is destroyed by pride, selfishness, and hatred. And it is so sad to realize that there are so many good people uh, that I would love on my own to be in communion with but because of the way the world is right now, that isn't reality, at least not yet. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that <clears throat> you're talking about it as a divorce. Because I, I think there's really nothing more heartbreaking than, That's right. to, than to see um, such painful and clear evidence of, like you said, ego. In a lot of my faith transition and conversion, mm -hmm. um, as I started, you know, I was Christian, but I kept thinking, man, th things have gone awry. And I kept looking backwards to try to find 
where I enjoyed, <laughs> you know, was like, well, still, things were still bad in the 1700s. Let me go further back, you know. Um, yeah. I, I took a, some time to just kind of separate myself to, to get a clear head. And I did a lot of reading about Buddhism and, and mm-hmm. uh, other faiths. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. Wh- wh- yeah, which helped me a lot in understanding what my ego was. And, you know, to put it in, in Christian terms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the the ego is everything in me that is not God right you know Um, whereas the true me the the deepest me the deepest self that I have um, as St. Teresa of Avila would say is is God that is nearer to me than I Mm. to myself right Um, and so as I came to that realization of the separation of, oh, there's, there's ego, and then there's true self. Mm. And I wanted to get closer to the true self. I, I became more comfortable saying, oh, that's, that's what Christ meant. <laughs> when, when he says, you know, um, when he talks about being in people, it, it's indwelling bef- before we, we don't have a say in it. You know, it, I, I truly believe that a portion of of God being that he created all things and and loves and wants to reconcile all things to himself Mm. as any good author there is is his mark within all people and um, you know they they may not recognize it but I've kind of devoted myself to trying to see God's signature within them despite them trying to cover it up you know one way of expressing that that might be a little more concrete to help people to visualize this um, in the Nicene Creed the word P-E-T-E-N is used for God the Father mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit is called the Zol P-O-N and it says of the Son, through whom all things have come into existence. Mm-hmm. So that one thing that the creed brings together is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. together form this one um, creative effort mm-hmm. to bring everything that exists into existence. It said the Father is the poet, the because that's what P-E-T-E-N actually is, P-A-O, is to to make something from something else, to create something new from that which previously was in a different form. Like if I if I were to go into the other room and rip the fabric out of one of the pew cushions mm-hmm. and to make a doll out of it for my daughter, mm-hmm. that would be something like what P-A-O means. Wow. You know, poets don't usually create the language that they're writing in, although right. they can fashion new words. They use the pre-existent words and they make something which is authoritatively new. That's beautiful. So here's the idea. God the Father is the poet. Mm-hmm. God the Son is the pen. Mm-hmm. It says in the creed, the one through whom all things came into existence. Mm-hmm. He's an instrument. The Holy Spirit's the ink. Beautiful. And the document upon which the message is written is the human heart. 
the law no longer has to exist on tablets of stone because it is written directly into each human person. So ideally, you know, this is how we would talk about the image and likeness of God in a person. But the other thing, you use the word portion. We use the word portion or merida, uh, even margarita, which is a pearl, mm -hmm. to refer to Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't have wafers, we use leavened bread. Mm -hmm. And so we break it into various pieces and there are crumbs all over the, the plate that we put it on in, mm -hmm. in the Divine Liturgy. And each one of those crumbs represents somebody for whom the priest prayed mm -hmm. as he was preparing the gifts before the service. I read names out of books that people bring to me and we're supposed to scrape little particles off into this plate and mm -hmm. all of it together uh, is blessed in, in some sense mm -hmm. uh, with the piece representing Christ being in the middle. Mm -hmm. Well, portions are what we refer to these little pieces wow. that people receive of the Eucharistic gifts Mm -hmm. And uh, the other word, of course, is pearl, margarita or margarite. It is something of great price. You know, Jesus mm -hmm. is called the pearl of great price. And this yes. word is used for the bread that we have in communion. But we would put this a slightly different way. In the prayer that I uh, said at the beginning, mm -hmm. mentioning the Holy Spirit, I said, who is everywhere present and filling all things. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament says that the heavens are my throne and the earth is a stool for my feet. Mm -hmm. God doesn't exist inside of existence. He is not part of his sure. creation. Sure. Creation, time, space, these are all limitations that God makes for us. He is right. not part of them. He is in them, right. but he's beyond them. Absolutely. Paradise for Orthodox Christians is Jesus, mm -hmm. risen from the dead. There's the heavens and the earth will be refashioned, but it is Christ who is in all places, filling all things. Right. The, the prologue to Saint John's, John's Gospel. Gospel. So yeah. when you look at it in this sense, then rather than trying to say what part of a human mm -hmm. being is the God part. Can I go into a person's heart or mind and scrape God out? It's like it's not really that sense. Right. We would say that not only people, but everything that exists is completely penetrated by mm -hmm. God and by his reality. Absolutely. So the difference is, why then do we say in the same prayer, come and abide in us? Does the word come indicate that he is far away and that he's supposed to approach us from right. some place he is to some place he is not? We don't believe that. Right. The phrase come and abide in us in the modern world is understood probably best by the cell phone mm -hmm. or the computer. The signal is always here. You, you gotta, have to turn it on to interpret it. it. Absolutely. Come and abide in us is our way of saying turn our hearts on so that we may perceive you mm -hmm. because we have in this world the ability to not perceive mm -hmm. to see without perceiving and to absolutely. hear without understanding absolutely there man, i i think no one stirs my mind about the creed better than the east <laughs> uh, you know that, that was 
a beautiful metaphor of the the statement of what Christianity is supposed to be and also its relationship to us. So thank you for sharing that. If it isn't relational, it doesn't really help. Absolutely. I personally tell people that theological teachings and even the writing of the scripture is not for the answering of theological questions for Mm -hmm. which we will never need to know the answers. It is about having life and making it an abundant life. So if we don't find life Mm -hmm. in those words, we have missed the whole point. Absolutely. You can memorize every passage of Old and New Testament and recite them at great length and go right to hell when you die. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But there's, as you're speaking, um, I was reminded of of something. I don't know if this is in all Orthodox traditions or or just the Byzantine, um, because I'm ignorant, but the... uh, the idea that all water is blessed because it, it's all been in contact with water that has been blessed. You know, um, I saw yes. a, a video of the annual uh, water blessing, mm-hmm. of, you know, and it, to to my eyes, having never seen it, was almost comical, but not in a disrespectful way, but in a surprising, you know, I, I, I think yeah. comedy is good because it's, it's truth and it's yes and it's it is beauty in a surprising way and so to see to somebody see people, throwing water at people with a huge brush made of horses hair yeah just, you know wiping them out like and this it, it is it's supposed to be fun yeah and, and among the, other the idea of a person just hucking a cross into a yes. lake it was I, we did I was, that last year over here off of Quaker. Oh, I and, uh, I saw the uh, I was perusing the website and um, saw or it might have been the parish's Facebook page, but it, yeah. it mentioned there was a lot of ice blessing. and some beautiful birds, and it was a it was a wonderful day. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought, man, I would I would like to go to the next one just to to witness. Well, um, that's an interesting point. Somebody said that you know, uh, or people will ask, well, why do you do something like that? If you believe that the water doesn't need to be blessed or that water is holy because God made it or something like that. This would be equivalent to saying that men and women don't need to be married because if they love each other, they're already married in God's eyes. When I do pre-cana, pre-marital counseling, I tell people that there is no sacramental mystery that can make you something you aren't. The same thing is said for ordination. If a man is not a priest before he's ordained, he will not be one after, mm-hmm. but he will be held accountable on the last day for the gifts that he has been given, right. for whom the talents will be asked, you know, back in with interest. Sin tokoi, it says. Mm-hmm. So we don't believe that. There is this public necessity to to put God's aegis to put his authority on something right it is not to transform it in the sense of physically changing molecules i mean there's no way to answer that question does water stop being water when it's blessed i don't think so because i've been drinking holy water for years and it really doesn't taste like anything other than water right um you could say the same thing about the holy gifts themselves Mm Does it still taste like bread? Yes. Does it still taste like wine? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is it bread and wine? It is. 
but it is also something that it was not before. Right. This is more where we're going. It's the idea of taking things and bringing them together that previously had been separate. Mm -hmm. It's always about reconciliation. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about removing the dividing wall in the temple mm -hmm. that separated the court of the Gentiles from where the Jewish men and women were allowed to go into their chambers to worship. Mm -hmm. So this middle wall of partition is destroyed. Mm -hmm. And in Jesus, God brings together in Christ. I mean, that's why it's in Christ 123 times in Paul's writings. Yeah. In Christ Jesus that now the hostility has been taken away, that reunification has occurred. That's beautiful. And that, that's something that I think is in my limited knowledge and understanding of, of orthodoxy. Um, it, orthodoxy takes very seriously the, you know, rubbing up against the sacred all the time. It, it's something that, you know, I oftentimes wish that we Romans would do better, but that the idea that faith, your your Christian faith, isn't separate from anything. It's no. through and inside everything. Times mm -hmm. of, of fasting are times of fasting, and it has to permeate yes. your whole day, That's your right. whole life. Um, my, my family, we've been living increasingly liturgical, you know, in, in our home, um, which I, I is has been wonderful for us to really sit there and you know treat what we call Advent right mm -hmm. as a fast because it is it's it's the um, not in America but I mean it is it's supposed to be right it's a minor yeah. fast it's it's not the great fast but you know it's it's, it's a still fast. pretty stiff ours yeah. begins today we do oh, the, the forty days before Christmas. Oh. Uh, is the the Advent fast, and for mm -hmm. us, it really is based on Great Lent. Mm -hmm. It is uh, an edited and abbreviated form of what right. we do during Lent, but still, there are things that you're supposed to do every day. Mm -hmm. And you know, within the Roman Church, so many people don't know this, yeah. but it is also supposed to be that the liturgical vestments are the same color. You know, it, it's supposed to be a form of fasting and preparation and cleansing yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I appreciate the, the orthodox point of view because it, for, for me at least, draws me closer to that indwelling mystery. Mm. Um, because when you are very hungry, <laughs> it, it's easy at, at the end of the day when you, when you eat finally to, to remember um, God's blessing and, mm. and God's providence as you've chosen to condition yourself in, in taking control of your you know physical urges mm -hmm. you, you become more aware of your spiritual needs and so um, as you were speaking about the kind of orthodox point of view with a lot of things it I think that's really, it's, it's like a thread that runs through all of that, you know, is this, is this idea of reconciliation and remembering that all, all things belong to God and, and belong with yes. God. 
and it is our responsibility um, to recognize that and to take part in in that union. I would also add that there is a point to fasting uh, to all spiritual effort, uh, which is sometimes overlooked. The word napsis is used in the spiritual literature, and the usual translation given is sobriety. Mm-hmm. Napsis, with the word neptic, sometimes you will see this in literature, refers to our entire condition mm-hmm. as a person, to how we relate to God and to ourselves and to other people. Mm. Uh, a sober person uh, is careful in what they say to not hurt or to, to harm or to lacerate uh, other people with right. their speech. Uh, sobriety would determine how we act and um, how we relate to the natural world, how mm. we use different kinds of things, uh, what it means to use something in gratitude to God without abusing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots of ways in which we understand this. I mean, our philosophy of sexuality, especially inside of marriage, is something that is uh, is is an example that can be likened to the way that we use food even during Lent. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people still have to eat during Lent, but when yeah. you do eat, you eat certain kinds of food, not other kinds. Right. And at other times, you don't eat at all. Mm-hmm. That both things are part of the discipline. Right. And one of the most important things that sobriety brings at the end of the day is that there are some kinds of privations in our life which we can attend to by the grace of God. Once we have voluntarily not taken a certain food into our bodies, well, we can eat the food, we can drink something, we can have uh, a piece of fruit or a piece of bread, or Mm -hmm. uh, if you're on the keto diet, perhaps a piece of Lenten cheese. Um, But there are other things in our lives that we also have to be grateful for to God that we are not going to be able to have alleviation from. Mm -hmm. There are sufferings, there are physical handicaps. I have a a friend uh, that is in a wheelchair and and that struggles to speak and she Mm -hmm. has these, uh, I don't remember which the condition was, but it's basically she's crippled and she spends her life between bed and the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And there are aspects of our life which cannot ever be changed. Right. And we need to somehow learn, and fasting is one of the ways to learn this, how to give gratitude to God and to find God and to love God and to show God to other people right. through the kinds of things from which we fast that there is not going to be a Pascha of the Lord mm-hmm. in this life where we will be able to enjoy them again. Mm-hmm. That sometimes the Pascha of the Lord that puts an end to the fast is only in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And that as we learn in this world how to rejoice with our cheeseburgers and uh, Big Macs during bright week after Easter or Mm -hmm. after Christmas, sometimes we must learn in faith to hang on with those kinds of uh, deprivations that Mm -hmm. are not going to be healed. And that the only time we will experience the full healing grace of God is when we have entered into his fullness 
Absolutely. So it's sobriety is being able to rejoice in the things that we can have mm-hmm. when we can have them in a God-pleasing way, and then in some cases to learn how to live without the things we cannot have mm-hmm. and to give them up to God continuously, also with rejoicing, mm-hmm. knowing that the day will come when every tear is wiped away and every little wheelchair will be empty mm-hmm. and the crutches will be thrown away and all of the accoutrements of human suffering will will perish. Uh, I love the recognition of suffering you know um that that's what i think i mean so many spiritual teachers for that's right ever have have looked at life and said how do we how do we get through this you know that's exactly that's the whole point of buddhism yes life is suffering Suffering. how do we get out of this you know Um, that's right but i think i think it's one of the what's called the four noble truths yes (laughs) yeah it's it's the first of them yes um i actually at one point, you know, uh, in coming to understand my expression of, of faith and, and my relationship with God, I was reading through the Gospels and kept finding all of the Four Noble Truths are present in the Gospels. This is fascinating, you know, but, yeah. um, you know, you can, you can find within our most holy of Scripture... Mm-hmm. The, these very basic sure. uh, recognitions of, like you said, the things that we cannot separate ourselves from, these afflictions that, that mm-hmm. um, are part and parcel to our experience here. And a lot of times I, I have come to define suffering as the things that we cannot control. Mm. It, that's a really broad definition, and obviously there is, w- within that, there is a lot of varying degrees of suffering, right? Uh, a red light is a different kind of suffering than the yes. loss of a child, you know? But what, what I've come to simply mm. define suffering as things we can't control, all of a sudden, um, I've just had, a, I mean, it's, it's been profoundly mm. opening as I, as I look and, you know, whatever... The case maybe on my way here, I was a couple minutes late because I forgot about this construction that you couldn't turn left and that. And I yeah. thought, well, this is this is suffering. And and instead of being frustrated, oh, where are I? You know, thinking, I will take this suffering, this this bit that I cannot control, mm-hmm. and be grateful through it and give it back. You know, and, and that's a that's a good thing. The word uh, passion or pathi uh, in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, is used to refer to two things in the tradition. One is the passions that trouble the human person. Mm-hmm. The pathimata are things like our perennials, uh, lust, mm-hmm. greed, mm-hmm. Uh, jealousy, envy, pride, and, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. But it's also used for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And for someone who never sinned, nevertheless, he had a pathi. Mm-hmm. His passion was literally like ours except that there was a slightly different person there was a slightly different understanding to it it was sure. a 
passion that had not the marks of the kinds that we have. But mm. the question is, what do, what do they have to do with each other? Why do we use the word passion both for the suffering of Christ and for the suffering of human beings mm. um, that we usually call sin? Well, because basically the word is to not fight back against something. Mm. So when it comes to sin, we have all of these inclinations that are part and parcel of the human experience. Mm -hmm. If we give in to them without putting up a struggle, we go from sinning to having a passion, to having a habit, to having mm. an addiction. Yeah. If we stop fighting back enough, those things become full-blown, uh, habituated sins that mm. are very difficult to to uh, work through. Right. But in the case of Christ, everything which he accepted voluntarily for our salvation, he didn't fight back against it. Not by uh, will, but no, he must be done. That's right. In no sense did he fight back against it. So the same okay. word applies. Absolutely. And this is hard for people to understand because the actual response to our passions is Jesus's passion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in Christ, we finally have an answer to right. the, the apparently unmediated suffering that so many people go through in this world. Mm -hmm. Christ has joined us on the cross in the fullness of the human condition from the beginning to the end of human history. Mm -hmm. The Orthodox Church teaches that Jesus is in a sense crucified from the foundation of the world and mm -hmm. he remains so until he returns in glory while still sitting on the throne with mm -hmm. the Father in heaven. I imagine Christ's arms on the cross reaching back to the first There's moments of time into the last, last moments. That's yeah. right. It's a, that is a it. beautiful <laughs> image. It's exactly correct. God is in the middle. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm -hmm. One way that we understand that is that he's in the middle and time and everything else kind of vacillates and moves and floats around him. That well, that's the, uh... You can pray right now for your father or your grandmother or somebody else that lived 50 to 100 years ago, mm -hmm. and Christ has already heard your prayer and blessed that person in the life that they lived because for him it's all the same. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the, the, the doxology of the Roman church. Yeah. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is, is now, and ever, ever shall be, world without end, into the, the age which is coming. I, so we can say, for instance, this one beautiful prayer from the liturgy that is used uh, especially on Holy Saturday. Mm -hmm. says, in the grave with the body, in Sheol or Hades with the soul is God. Mm -hmm. In paradise, the garden, with the good thief, and on the throne with the Father and the Holy Spirit, were you, O Christ, filling all things yourself without circumscription or limitation. Mm. Wow. That he was dead and alive. Mm -hmm. He was with his Father and he was here with us. Mm -hmm. His body and soul were separated, and yet he, neither one of them was separated from the well, fullness of the, the word of God. You know, it's, it's the importance of this uh, three and the two. Yeah, I for for those listening, you know, yes, who who the, cannot see the, our little demonstration, the the hands, um, uh, that's the the hand posture for for crossing yourself, um, is your thumb, first finger, and second finger together as a trinity. 
and your ring finger and pinky tucked into your palm. Um, for the two natures. For, for the you know, dual, dual natures of Christ. I actually, as we, uh, you know, Romans don't prescribe that that is how, you know, they don't really say no, any, that you have <laughs> any which way, you know, but um, I've taught my children to cross themselves in this way. And you, also, we, you can do it this way. This mm-hmm. is also the, probably the older tradition is three down and two up. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I, that's something that I've borrowed from the East because it's, it's a very tangible feeling of here is all of our faith is a, the Trinity yes. as, you know, uh, the point yeah. for all of us. Uh, the Trinity is all things, and uh, the dual nature of Christ is how we have access to that. And That's I will, right. I will mark myself with it now. <laughs> Literally, it is because of Christ that the whole world can be saved. Mm-hmm. When people like Cyprian of Carthage in, in the 3rd century say that outside of the church there is no salvation... What they're really saying is that salvation is the reality of death being destroyed through mm-hmm. the risen, crucified Son of God. It's beautiful. And so in that sense, then, Jesus, risen from the dead, is the coming kingdom. He's mm-hmm. the new Jerusalem. He's the new Moses, the new Davidic kingdom, the last temple, the last city of God, the one whose gates and uh, doors will never close. He's all of those things together. The city with the with the twelve, uh, you know, uh, uh, pillars and all of these things that, that we read about is all about this reality of this wedding feast mm-hmm. uh, now inaugurated between Christ and all the people that are meli to Christu, parts of His body, mm-hmm. members literally mm-hmm. of Christ. So it, it's not to say that people in other religious traditions will not enter the kingdom of God, far from it. Because of the resurrection of Christ, everyone will enter the kingdom of God. Eternal life exists for all people, mm-hmm. all places, all things. Everything which God has made will now be restored into a form that cannot end. But so the difference, wonderful. as it says in 529 of the book of uh, John, the theologian, is that some will be raised to a resurrection of Zoe, the life that comes from the Holy Spirit, and some will be raised to a resurrection of eternal condemnation. Mm-hmm. But all will be raised, all will live forever. <laughs> and so it's not possible, there is no other possible way mm-hmm. for anybody of any religion and any teaching or any philosophical method to exist with God forever and ever, except in the dispensation which has already occurred in the person of the perfected Jesus, who is right. God even while being dead on the cross. Yeah, the, the archetype. Yes. Um, we'll go ahead and move into the second question. Uh, that was the first question? Yeah, yeah or uh, more, <laughs> uh, just some, because we covered a lot of, I mean, basically everything, but just to kind of <laughs> wrap up uh, a couple of the little details in those. Um, so the second question is about what it what it's like to practice in mm-hmm. the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for those listening um, who don't know, um, one thing that uh, you mentioned earlier, you're, you're married and have children. One thing that's really fascinating to me about the Eastern churches is that they have married priests, which 
Romans do too, mm-hmm. um, for right. Anglican converts and uh, you know there, yes, there are that's right. there are it's and not, for their Eastern Rite clergy exactly cases, that's um, right. And so uh, when people say, well, Catholics don't have married clergy, it's like, well, which Catholic? And also, that's right. <laughs> you know, but um, would you mind uh, kind of giving a glimpse into what it's like to live as a as a married priest and uh, to practice Orthodox faith sure. as, a, as a literal father <laughs> and also as a spiritual father? Well, thank you. Um, one of the things that I can say historically is that the, the traditions of having clergy uh, being married grew up side by side with the traditions of having clergy that were celibate. Right. One of the traditions in the Church of the West was that many cathedrals wanted to have daily masses. And you will see this right now into the 21st century where mm-hmm. most Roman Catholic uh, communities do have daily masses said by one or more of the priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a tradition which was common throughout the ancient world for all married persons that when they prepare for the reception of Holy Communion, uh, there has to be a time of fasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is usually now from like midnight of the previous evening. So mm-hmm. if you're going to have a liturgy in the morning, you fast from, from either midnight or your last meal, mm-hmm. and you don't eat or drink ideally anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is also understood that the fast includes sexuality for people who are married. Mm-hmm. So this is for everybody receiving communion. This is right. not about being a priest. Right. It is a fast from all of the things that are like pleasures that, however good they may be when they're used, mm-hmm. they can also be abused. And when we are preparing ourselves to become receptacles, vessels, and even temples of the presence of God, we lay aside these other earthly cares, Mm -hmm. as it says in one of our hymns. So we we abstain from eating, drinking, and sexual behavior in order to be a a person who is receiving the holy mysteries uh, consciously and, and aware of their responsibilities. And the time is used for praying. Uh, We have a somewhat elaborate service of canons, texts, uh, and prayers for the preparation for Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. It can take an hour or two in order to read these if you were to just read them all from cover to cover. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happens then for a priest who is serving a liturgy? Essentially, he has the same rules. Mm -hmm. And in the Christian East, it used to be that most clergy only served on Sundays and holidays. Mm-hmm. So there were no weekday liturgies. People just didn't go to them. Right. Fourth century Constantinople is something of an exception where you see people like St. John Chrysostom giving mm-hmm. daily sermons uh, at liturgies uh, for people, especially catechesis during the Lenten times. Right. This was not the norm throughout the Christian East, the four patriarchates of Alexandria, mm-hmm. uh, Antioch, Jerusalem, and eventually uh, Constantinople, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Um, so, in the West, once they develop daily masses as part of the piety and the traditions of their clergy, now the person has to fast every day. Mm-hmm. And the question came up, can you actually have a married life when you can no longer be intimate with your with your wife right. and have children. You can't even make them, let alone care for them. <laughs> yeah. 
so the tradition quickly developed that in order for that to continue, clergy over time grew to be celibate. But this never took off. And in the Council of Truo in 692, uh, it was effectively decided that there would be a kind of a split between the bishops and the priests and deacons. Right. At that point, there was a canon that said that bishops from this moment on will always be celibate and chosen mm -hmm. from the ranks of monastics. And priests and deacons would have the option of being married men living in the world right. or monastics living in monasteries and serving monastic communities. Mm -hmm. So those two canons were back to back at the Council of Truro. Mm -hmm. And it was a response to the continuous concerns. But uh, in the Christian West, between the patterns that had developed were both the bishops and the presbyters and deacons were, were increasingly becoming um, uh, celibate so. for the same basic reason. So what they did is they said, from here forth, let no one bother the presbyters and the deacons who have chosen to stay with their wives and to keep wives and to have families and to have relations. He said, these things are blessed by God. We have the example of the apostle Peter, mm -hmm. whose mother-in-law was healed by Jesus. Perhaps the first case in history where a man's mother-in-law was blessed by God, you know. And then we have over here the tradition of the equally weighty Apostle Paul, mm -hmm. who makes specific mention in his epistles that indeed right. uh, there was, um, uh, that he did not have a sister as wife. He said, do we not have the same privileges as the other apostles, and yet for your sake, we don't we don't take advantage of these things right. he said i could be married i should be married other people are i'm not because i'm devoting myself to you and you alone right. out of service to god so that peter and paul are considered the two pillars of the of the catholic church right. they are the two uh uh, pillars that that hold up the the entire edifice mm -hmm. and you have one was married and one was not right. so this is essentially the the understanding so yes uh, I, I am a married man and I do have two children um, but you remember that of course we have fasting days mm -hmm. during the week every Wednesday and Friday is supposed to be a fast day mm -hmm. so uh, okay. sexuality is is not uh, ideally permitted on any fast day mm -hmm. just as it would be before the reception of Holy Communion or right. before serving a liturgy but otherwise I mean married life is full of all these different things and one of the things it's full of is the realities of being married and struggling to do the same thing that the people in the parishes do. Mm -hmm. Having children screaming in your ear and keeping you up at night right. and preventing you from sleeping and, you know, uh, yeah, having all night last intestinal night. <laughs> movements over and over and ruining one set of clothes after another. Yeah. And all of this going on while you're trying to be present for other people and their needs there's the sense that my phone can go off at any time mm -hmm. people have trouble and they text me in the middle of the night and i can't tell them well excuse me i'm a normal person and i'm going to bed you and your problems can come back in the morning right you know jesus had to go out to pray in the middle of the night because people pressed upon him from dawn till dusk during the day mm -hmm. um in the modern age, it's very hard for me to disappear from, from people. Right. Uh, even if I pray, I, I often have a prayer book online that I read as part of my daily devotions. Mm -hmm. But when I do that, people see that I am on the internet 
-hmm. they assume it's time to talk to Father Peter. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you gently say, excuse me, Father Peter is unavailable. He is currently praying and being with Jesus. (laughs) So there is a a back and forth, and, Mm -hmm. and my wife and children deserve to have my attention at some time. So there's a question of balance we talked about before. How does one lovingly balance unbalanceable expectations? The person whose Mm. marriage is struggling, the person who is uh, suffering from demonic attacks, the the person who is being... um, uh, having a hard time at work dealing with uh, people that don't understand them because they converted to this strange church that nobody heard of. And yeah. all of these things are going on while my life is supposed to be going on. Right. And I have to go back and forth. And sometimes, like last night, uh, we went to Applebee's to celebrate my wife's 41st birthday. Wow. And I shut my phone off and put it in my jacket. Mm-hmm. It is too easy to say that the people of God have endless needs, so I always have to be there for them. That's not always true. Right. Sometimes I don't have to be there for them. There are times when I need to say, excuse me, this time belongs to my wife mm-hmm. or to my daughters. Mm-hmm. And therefore, sometimes people aren't going to understand and we have to ask forgiveness. One of the things that I've learned a lot is that it's not okay as the leader of a community to act like you do not err and you never need to say you're sorry. Right. We have a built-in rite of Christian forgiveness that takes place on the eve of Great Lent where the priest first and then all of the lay people get on their hands and knees and make full body prostrations in front of each and every person in the church mm. asking forgiveness for any sins they may have committed during the previous year. It's the last thing we do is we enter into the great and holy uh, Paschal fast in the in the spring mm-hmm. for the resurrection of Jesus. So from time to time, I have to separate myself from the glory and dignity of the priestly office and as a person tell people that I have fallen down on the job, erred, not mm-hmm. been present, not been there to get every phone call, not been there to to react to every email, Mm. not listened to all of their things because something else was going on. It is, in a sense, part of my realizing that this is God's ministry, God's grace, God's church, God's spirit. I am not the person who is doing all of these things, Mm -hmm. but it is possible for me to get in the way and to spiritually harm people by my human failures and shortcomings. Mm -hmm. So I must be able to accept that. And when I have done something, especially something in public uh, that needs to be addressed, it needs to be addressed. And uh, this happened recently in our church community. I was taught by Father Thomas Hopko, our dogmatics professor at St. Vladimir Seminary. Mm-hmm. He said essentially, when you sin alone, you repent alone. When you sin before another, you repent before the other. And when you sin in public, you repent in public. Wow. And That's that powerful. is extremely <laughs> important mm-hmm. because many scandals have been caused by the church, by people who sinned mm-hmm. in public and thought they could repent in private. Mm -hmm. 
That is not a Christian virtue. No, and something that is rampant in the Roman church at the moment. Um, and I know it affects anyone who wears a collar. <laughs> um, I yes, can't it does, especially somebody who wears a collar and has two children. I, I know. Uh, you know, you, you hear so many... Um, you hear about people's struggles through seeing what the church, the Roman church, varies uh, we a lot more too, than others, you know. Uh, we're not seems, immune. No, and no, no one is, you know. No one is. But um, the, the scandal seems to, hit right. our, seems to have hit our church. And uh, I think, like you mentioned, the, the, the public repentance um, is absolutely paramount um, to maintaining that trust. And like we've been talking about, this familial context Mm-hmm. Um, the the church standing up before the world and saying, we have failed. The human part of us has, has fallen. Right. And we, you know, that there's nothing they can do but apologize. And I, I think what, what you mentioned just now is something that a lot of us need. You know, and I, as, as a dad, there, there are times when, you know, maybe snap mm. at the kids or whatever and it's important mm. to apologize to mm. the kids and, and yes to, it is to get into like you said when, when you and to ask another, for their forgiveness absolutely uh, that's so, something there's there's not i can't think of something more humbling than getting on your knees before a three-year-old and saying i'm sorry do you forgive daddy <laughs> you know and it is important that. to say both Apologizing and taking responsibility for guilt isn't the same thing as asking someone's forgiveness. Absolutely. We really have to say that I probably don't even deserve your forgiveness, but in the spirit of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, I'm going to ask anyway. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's the only thing you can say. Humility alone is the answer. There is a famous uh, quote attributed to St. Anthony of the Desert, who is mm-hmm. a certainly a father of great affection for both Roman Catholics and oh. all of the Eastern Orthodox Christians. Absolutely. And he, was, uh, he had a vision of all of the snares of the devil laid mm-hmm. out upon the ground, all of the different kinds of temptations. Mm-hmm. And he was terrified by what was out there, you know, and so he says, who can flee from all of these things? And an angel came to him and said, humility. Wow. <laughs> or if you will, by humility or humility personified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, by humble and patient endurance, you will gain your souls, it says in Luke. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is so important. We do not enter the kingdom of God by being perfect persons who don't make mistakes and who fulfill the law and therefore earn or deserve to be given entrance into into paradise. We fall and get up and fall and get up and fall and get up. We are brought in to the body of Christ and we fail, but his body heals our wounds. We are the, the wild olive shoot grafted into the uh, original olive tree of Israel. Mm -hmm. And when we are becoming body parts of Christ, it is his blood literally that flows through our veins in every sense of the word. So we are being healed. We Mm -hmm. are being cleansed. We are being perfected. We're like a transplanted 
organ that mm-hmm. has to become healthy and whole mm-hmm. uh, and to not be rejected by the body. Right. So this is all part of what human life is. This is what salvation is. Mm-hmm. In the eyes of Orthodox Christians, it's probably a well enough known fact that we don't have um, forensic views of salvation or forgiveness or righteousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't really anything to do. God's forgiveness and mercy is taken for granted in the sense that he did not need his son to die on the cross to justify forgiving anyone. Right. God loves and forgives because he's God. Yeah. The sign of his forgiveness is the remission of sins. Right. And now there is a reason for Jesus to become obedient, to be without sin, to not deserve to die, to voluntarily die anyway, to mm-hmm. accept the hatred, bitterness, suffering, and tears, and misery of the whole world in every direction at all times to be obedient to experience the absence of Mm -hmm. his father's love on the cross and nevertheless to say into thy hands i commit my spirit and Mm -hmm. then to enter into sheol and destroy death by his own death and bring life into death and light into darkness and all of these things that we talk about because it's is afesin hamartion now our sins can be removed. The poison can be sucked out. Mm -hmm. We can finally be perfected by becoming part of the perfection of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, exactly. It's the condition of becoming God by grace Mm -hmm. from him who is God by nature, who became man for our sake. So... There's nothing more wonderful in the world than realizing that we can do this. And it is yet the greatest challenge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I find, I, I teach music. Um, I had seen, yeah. At, at a private studio. And one thing I do with a lot of my students is I draw an X and a Y axis. And along the X axis is easy and difficult. And along the Y axis is simple and complicated. Mm. So they're things that are profoundly simple and wildly difficult (laughs) you know um that a lot of times we struggle with things because we think well i understand this this makes sense it's pretty it's a simple idea but it's so hard to live in and a lot of times we'll we'll struggle in that because we think well if i understand it i should be able to do it you know Mm. but as saint paul says i I do the things I know I shouldn't, but I don't do the things I know I should. That's the war. You know, it's just because you understand that this is true and, you know, it makes sense doesn't mean that it's easy to do by any means. Some people would say like, well, okay, so you have prayers in the morning and prayers in the evening and you have liturgy and all of this, but what, what does one do with one's life as an Orthodox Christian? And then you come to the commandment of Paul in First Thessalonians five seventeen, he said, "You pray, pray ceaselessly." <laughs> it's like, how do you do that? It's well, the, the Jesus prayer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, well, we use these arrow prayers, and they used to be short prayers, like, "Have mercy upon me, O God, mm-hmm. O uh, God, attend to helping me, Lord, speed to save me, mm-hmm. save me, O God, by Your name, and uh, justify me by Your strength, and so forth." And uh, the monks would take 
a basket and put little pebbles or rocks in it in order to count them. Uh, and then they would, you know, take the pebbles out and count count some more mm-hmm. going the other way. I mean, and eventually we developed these traditions of weaving uh, ropes and other things to keep track of this. But essentially the whole point is that we are trying to constantly put ourselves in the presence of God in a meaningful way. So what could be simpler than saying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, mm-hmm. or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Mm-hmm. Well, I can show you about 15 books that were written on this subject and that they have the exact same topic and they just go on at length about how this works out in reality. It is simple but not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the Desert Fathers said that prayer is blood and sweat till the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a constant veil of tears that we go through our entire life yeah. because there is a force which is opposed to the will of God that has made it as difficult as humanly possible to live a life of ceaseless right. prayer. The minute I try and devote myself to the consistent, ceaseless remembrance of God, the gates of hell open up and every conceivable distraction takes place. Oh yeah. There are times when we will sit down in a single place and be quiet and pray there, usually with a timer of some sort or with a prayer rope, and other times where we use it freely during the day. You would think the most peaceful times would be when we're sitting quietly with our prayer rope in front of the icons with a candle lit. Well, not really, because the minute I try to grab that prayer rope, it's like the cats come in and they start circling my legs and sitting in my lap. The baby begins crying. (laughs) Eldest daughter, number one, wants something. My wife will come out of no place and need to do something in that room that she didn't need to do five minutes before. Uh, The phone will ring. There'll be a cell phone. Six people will ping on Yahoo Messenger. Uh, There will be uh, uh, fundamentalists at the front door trying to sell salvation. Uh, uh, There will be everything imaginable will happen except me praying. Yes. (laughs) And then when that period of halcyon time is over, I'm supposed to try and continue it during the day. So I go out and I make the sign of the cross and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. And two or three seconds later, I'm thinking about lunch. (laughs) or whatever comes up. And I will notice after about an hour and a half that I haven't prayed at all. So what happens when we struggle to seek the presence of God and we give up? What happens to us? In a sense, it's like being lost out in the forest alone without a compass. It can be frightening once we take a consideration of the fact. A person that's taking a walk out in the wilderness is looking at the flowers and the trees and listening to the birds and the the babbling brook and enjoying the the day and the sunlight Mm -hmm. until he realizes he's lost. Mm -hmm. And it is, at that point, no longer fun. Mm -hmm. So I do, like I would say pretty much everybody else, We go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it is really a struggle. If someone told you the easiest thing in the world 
that you can do for your salvation is to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy from the minute you wake up in the morning till the minute you go to bed, would say, well, that's pretty short. It's easy to remember. Mm -hmm. I'll just do that a lot. I don't think there's anything more difficult. Mm -mm. Well, it's, it's a challenge at, at work. You know, I'll keep, I don't, I don't have a proper chop key, you know, but I took some paracord and they did 33 knots and I'll keep it in my pocket. And, you know, I'm walking with my hand in my pocket, just moving along my rope and, uh, you know, I encounter a, a staff member who has a question, you know, I answer their question and I go to walk away and it's, you, you, it's difficult to remember, put your hand back in your pocket and get back to it, you know, continue, like you said, to continue that, that prayerful, um, posture of, mm -hmm. of one's soul is difficult when you have to be engaged in the world. Um, I oftentimes find myself, uh, maybe not envious, but close to it of monks because there, there's, <coughs> you know, of course there's going to be distractions and things. No one is, is immune to that. But when for the, you know, the Western monks are, they're living the divine office. They're, they're seven hours a day of prayer. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a, a monastic office for the East. I'm just not as familiar with it. You know, as you have yes. these, these modes of, all right, at this time we enter into this prayer and a couple hours later we enter it into it again. And, you know, that ordering of one's life, I've tried to mimic that, to, to have these moments of, well, my alarm went off. It's time mm -hmm. for, for Vespers. I, I'm, I must go pray. It is time for Compline. I must go pray, you know. I, I've, you know, most most days what happens is I have my breviary with me and yeah. and my timer goes off and I'm driving and I'm like, oh, well, say evening prayer when I stop and then I don't. <laughs> One way that we've handled that is that uh, you know in the monastic life people assume that monks really don't have anything to do all day but they, pray. They work. The fact is they have to work. Mm -hmm. Nobody's feeding them. No. You know, they have to do things, and a lot of what they do is stuff that other people uh, buy from them as a charitable gift so that they indeed can eat and like have a life and making, pray for people. You know, like making candles, making icons, you know, making prayer ropes, prayer ropes um, yeah. even raising food and, and things like that. Um, these things are done so that they can live and then they have the duty of hospitality for mm -hmm. people coming in and spending time with them and caring for them and feeding them. They have to feed three meals a day to guests even when they personally can't eat. You know, it's like mm -hmm. they have to keep the rooms. They've got sick people to take care of in the yeah. monastery sometimes. Uh, every demon in hell is designed to prevent the monk from praying, and yet this is the monk's primary responsibility upon the earth. Mm -hmm. I know many people in monastic communities that do not keep the monastic office because they just cannot do it. They've right. given up everything to go and to be monks and nuns, and because of the conditions of their life that mm -hmm. are necessary and fixed, they cannot keep the actual offices for which they desired so much mm -hmm. to leave the world in order to have that kind of life. So what they do is they have like 
an enormous prayer vigil, usually in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Most Orthodox Christians pray between sunset and sunrise. Mm -hmm. Usually you work during the other hours. So the time that we're praying is coming out of sleep Mm -hmm. and personal activities. You know, they have to work all day long and then they have a vigil time of some kind in the dark hours of the night. Mm -hmm. So those seven or eight hour services uh, are taking place at the expense of their personal time and their Mm -hmm. sleep. And they only eat once or twice a day and they have a very fixed menu and short, quiet meals where somebody reads from uh, monastic literature while they're sitting. So they're in complete silence while they're eating. You know, you have all of these things and yet still they have to struggle to say the Jesus prayer and to remember love and charity and mercy and to act as though they are always in the presence of God. And it is at least as hard for them, if not worse, than it is for us because the devil can come to us hiding behind people, places, and things. Mm -hmm. In the monastic life, because they spend so much of their time alone, the devil has no one to hide behind. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes he comes to them in forms that are much more frightening Mm -hmm. and more immediate and direct. Mm -hmm. So there are horrible temptations uh, for people trying to live in silence and seclusion that we don't even have the first clue on what they're going through. And the other thing is once you make a commitment to something, then it's worse. It's like taking off your white glove and slapping the devil across the face Mm -hmm. and saying, come get it. Uh, When we make a commitment of any kind, you wake up and you make the sign of the cross and I'm going to remember the name of God all day. Well, somebody heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And it will be an things, sadnesses, hardships, failures, difficulties, obstructions, frustrations, bitterness, anger, naughty drivers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, problems at school, tardy children, angry spouses, uh, interior stuff thrown against us. It all comes out. Mm-hmm. And it's all a smoke screen. Mm-hmm. It is a total, complete lie mm-hmm. because we tried to do something that the devil can't have. Right. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It, it, hard, but, <laughs> you know, um, uh, important to understand and, and to, to name. Um, so if somebody says, well, you're an Orthodox Christian priest. What do you do most of the day for prayer? Said, I try and fail continuously mm-hmm. to remember the name of God. Mm-hmm. I, I identify with that entirely. <laughs> um, so question three, which we can get through uh, pretty shortly, I'm sure, is what are some common misconceptions about Orthodox Christianity? Um, I think the most obvious one is that the word orthodox doesn't really mean in contemporary English what what it meant in the ancient world. In the days of the undivided church before 1054, the words uh, catholici and orthodoxos were used uh, interchangeably to refer to the church and the theology. Mm -hmm. Usually, the church was called the Catholici Ecclesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catholon means something that has the fullness inside of it. Mm-hmm. That every place you have a priest or a bishop, 
in canonical succession to their hierarchs, surrounded by the people for the celebration of the Eucharist is the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it, it's everything is there in its fullness uh, in the local assembly. Right. And then each one of the assemblies throughout the world is also the fullness of the church. Right. So Catholic key in that sense is about the, the completeness in even the smallest uh, community that everything in the faith is present, that God is there in his fullness. Mm -hmm. But the word orthodoxia or orthodoxos has to do with the idea that we're trying to separate out over the centuries mm -hmm. uh, similar and different forms of understanding what the church's purpose is. So orthos is the word that means straight, mm -hmm. up and down, like, uh, like, a, like, you know, when a chiropractor straightens your back out or something. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you, you have orthopedics and you have mm -hmm. other things that use that word, orthodontistry, mm -hmm. and other things that are for straightening out and making mm -hmm. something, you know, uh, 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 kind of level and, and uh, stable. That's the most important word. Mm -hmm. So this is often understood in the contemporary environment as simply meaning old, uh, out of date, Mm -hmm. conservative versus liberal mm -hmm. um, I don't know what there are all kinds of words that have to do with the realities of the modern world that don't mean what Orthodox means for Orthodox Christians right. and they certainly don't refer to the faith that was passed on from Jesus to his apostles in the mm -hmm. ancient world as a faith goes, what we're saying is that the glory which is due to God and the worship, the the teachings, the the principles, the the rule and order of the bishops, priests, and deacons, all the sacraments, uh, all of the holy mysteries, everything that exists in the life of the church, mm -hmm. is to be that that straight plumb line. Right. Uh, the canona in Greek that doesn't move, that it's the one thing that you use to demonstrate what is absolutely, uh, you know, uh, fixed and true, mm -hmm. that it doesn't sway from one side to the other. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, then, it has to do with uh, uh, separating uh, ourselves from things that if people believed them or worshipped in that way, they would lead people astray into some kind of act of ego or selfishness right. or whatever that that we don't uh, we, we want to pass on what was given to us this is a commandment from St. Paul mm -hmm. he says it especially in 2nd uh, Timothy uh, 2 2 that he says take what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and pass that on in the presence of other witnesses who are apt teachers mm -hmm. this is to continue the the apostolic tradition right. going from one generation to the next we don't add to it and we don't subtract from it mm -hmm. that would be the understanding and the goal all of the theological formulations were not developments in thinking at all the whole purpose of the ecumenical councils was to flesh out the meaning of right. the the single apostolic tradition the parathiki that uh, that uh, Paul passed on to Timothy and Titus, the church's first bishops, mm -hmm. under him. He uses the word parathesis when he is talking about traditioning the gospel, when mm. he is giving it from his own lips, 
Mm-hmm. Once it is being passed down after his death mm-hmm. to the next generation, it's called a parathiki, mm-hmm. which in this case is a fixed object. Mm-hmm. It is now something that we receive and we hand on. So we would never say that any of the teachings of the ecumenical councils altered, subtracted from, or added to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Right, but rather it revealed it. Yes, they were to demonstrate uh, in one situation mm-hmm. after another, how does it refer to this problem? How does it refer to this problem? How does it refer to this problem? Mm-hmm. So we have people that question us today. What about you know uh, the issue of homosexuality or, or uh, gender uh, issues in the modern world? What about the place of women in, in liturgical communities? What about uh, social causes and different things? When Orthodox Christians are called upon to answer those kinds of questions, mm-hmm. we do what we've always done. We get together, we look at what is the fixed and if you will, perfected uh, understanding of the gospel that has preserved the church from the beginning, and we try to uh, apply it to a current situation, whatever that is, and say, we believe, uh, and the Holy Spirit, you know, with us, like it says in the Acts of the Apostles, Mm -hmm. uh, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that, you know, we would enjoin you only these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, this is the means by which we we have dealt with contemporary issues for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. We continue using the lens of the crucified and risen Christ as mm-hmm. interpreted through the fathers of the Orthodox Church who interpret the scriptural teachings in the light of communion, in the light of the liturgy, and in everything right. that exists in the church's life in continuity with the past mm-hmm. and as it applies to each new situation which we have faced you know in virtually every century that the church has oh, existed yeah. yeah it's 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 difficult um to be the branches of an unmoving tree <laughs> you know thankfully a tree is growing yeah absolutely um i've, I've found that one thing that's been really bizarre for me personally, is that as I've gotten older and um, kind of come into being a father and, and a husband, um, I've gotten more religious, but less likely to impose the religion on anyone. And uh, what, because right. people will ask me, you know, that they've said things well, like, you know, the, the Catholic Church believes this. How, how can you justify that? And I say, well, look, for, for a moment, understand that the, the church, the Christian church as a whole, sets a very high bar. That's right. And very intentionally so. That's right. Um, but my position and my job, my, my duty, is to do my best to live up to the bar. And as I fall underneath it, there is infinite grace. That's right. What we're, where sin is present, grace abounds. Yes. And my job is not to extend the bar to other people, but to extend the grace to other people. That's a wonderful way of putting it. And so when, when I approach like these modern, um, very challenging and, and relationship-rooted uh, issues, um, I informed by my faith, serve those people and love those people mm. and make no prescription with how they should live. 
um, rather I extend them the grace and say, here is a bar that you could try to live up to if you would like, but I'm going to extend you what has been extended to me, which is mercy. That's right. It's, like, it's the extent to which we judge other people is the extent to which we can be judged. Mm-hmm. There is a, I don't want to call it tongue-in-cheek, but it is a kind of a non-canonized teaching in the Orthodox Church that mm-hmm. because of dealing with the afterlife, we don't have a dogmatic statement about it. But we often talk about what happens when a person dies in terms of an intermediate or a particular judgment of the soul, Mm -hmm. that until the second coming of Christ, when we stand before God and the whole universe, body, soul, mind, and spirit, Mm -hmm. nevertheless, we don't believe that the soul sleeps. When the person dies, immediately there is a whole new life for our spirit to to deal with and the first thing that happens is we we see Christ as he is Mm -hmm. and we have to see ourselves the way that we were and there is a whole process whereby the soul or the spirit whatever you wish to call it Mm -hmm. is reminded of all of its many sins Mm -hmm. and failures and of the of the good deeds and the faith and and you know the places where we where people loved us and prayed for us and all of these things Mm -hmm. and this process is sometimes like uh, driving on a highway where there are a bunch of toll booths mm-hmm. and you have to stop and pay your toll every now and then and mm-hmm. some angry person inside the booth looks at you like you know you really don't matter and like 50 cents you know <laughs> and you throw it in there and say have a nice day they're like mm. you know um, there's that kind of reality and uh, each one of these little toll booths represents uh, a sin or a category of sinfulness mm-hmm. And it is said that it's possible to get all the way to the end of them and to be found uh, righteous or to be forgiven uh, of each and every kind of sin, but the very last pathway is mercy. Mm-hmm. And it's possible for someone to have done everything else in the Christian life and to wind up being grabbed by the demons and carried back into Sheol mm-hmm. and losing the opportunity to be in the presence of Christ because they didn't show mercy Mm -hmm. it's the last gateway before the person enters into the fullness of the kingdom of god yeah it's the it's the necessitated necessitated response yes exactly god Um, judges you know it's like jesus sits on the throne it's for him to decide how to dispense his love and mercy but what he is essentially going to do is he looks into the heart of each person as we understand judgment and he looks for the presence of love, mercy, forgiveness, even unto 70 times 7, especially of the enemy of the person that hates us and mm-hmm. does us harm intentionally. Absolutely. And this will be the condition by which we will be forgiven, mm-hmm. you know, by Christ at the end and welcomed into his kingdom. It's, it's beautiful. And that's, you know, as, as I'm looking around at these beautiful icons, which is a, a tradition that I had just a door is the authoring of icons um i i'm reminded i mean the, the point of them is is to teach us and to inscribe on us a message of of christ's mercy and it's always pointing mm-hmm. back right you know to they're attractive and beautiful and, and it's to say this man here 
the, the mercy that he extended is the point. And, right. And we ought to participate in it. Much of Christianity, and I, I don't know all the reasons for this, but uh, it goes back to some of what we were talking about earlier. Much of Christianity has descended into a gospel that at first sight offends. Mm. And God appears to be angry, vindictive, uh, uh, murdering his own child to benefit his, oh, his concept of uh, justification and so on. And, and you see a God that is not at all attractive, that you could only worship out of fear. Mm -hmm. And in reality, the Orthodox Church says, no, look at the icons. If you light a candle and you stand in front of the icons and you pray quietly, several things will happen. One is you will be convicted of your sins but not by the anger and harshness and bitterness and hatred and judgmentalness of God sitting on his throne, glowering over all of creation. It's the actual love and mercy and beauty and simplicity of Christ and his mother and the angels and the saints that mm -hmm. so fills us with love when we stand wow. in their presence that you can't help but, but realize the difference between what's coming to us from God and our response. Yes. And that's where we see the conviction and judgment of sin. It is the gentle look of Christ that immediately reminds us of everything that has happened in us that offended the love of Christ in the world. Right. He he offers us all of these things, mercy and love and forgiveness. And so there is the conviction of sins, but it's done in a way that is attractive. And then for the person who's suffering, there is comfort, of course, and mm -hmm. calling a person forward that even if the suffering isn't going to end, that nevertheless, God continues being here with us and joining us in that prison cell, in the concentration camp, as you're mm -hmm. awaiting martyrdom or execution, as you're facing your judges and condemners, mm -hmm. as you're being uh, laughed at, ridiculed, and yeah. mocked by other people in an uncomprehending society, that Christ stands here with us and that he suffers with us. Uh, we are crucified with Christ, mm -hmm. and as he dies on his cross, we die on ours. And, Absolutely. you know, we kind of go hand and nail and hand and nail into the kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, it, as you were speaking, you know, being in the concentration camps, I mean, these real powerful images, I'm reminded, I've, I don't remember the name of the saint, but I believe... Um, he was Ukrainian, and uh, I believe he was a, a bishop um, in the earliest, early 20th century, uh, and, and he was, you know, sought by the government, and they, they tried to have him murdered once and failed. I, I don't remember. The, I'm, I'm sure you, you know who I'm speaking of. I'm sure there are many stories, many saints who there, went through there that. Are, there are. Um, but Too I, many. I, I remember reading the story of this person who was told by the authorities, you cannot take the mercy of Christ to the people you are charged to, to care for. And he said, watch me, you know, and, and um, extended that mercy and that love mm -hmm. and the presence of Christ through um, communion and through reconciliation and all these wonderful mysteries to his people to to his own detriment, to his own yes. end. And, and I, I'm reminded of, you know, as we 
see these stories of martyrs and saints, how we can take our little martyrdom every day, our little deaths, and, and offer right. them in, in, through mercy and not out of judgment, but yes, in that, love. Yes, that's the whole point, I think, behind iconography and the church's mysteries. We try not to come down on people from above and to threaten and mm-hmm. scare and all of these things. The only way that Christ can intervene in a person's life is by showing them the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the all radiating uh, light of of God. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Jesus came to eat with tax collectors and sinners not so that they would be confirmed and they're collecting taxes and sinning, but so that they might change. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I called sinners unto repentance. Mm-hmm. It is, he accepts and welcomes all, but he will transform all. Not, he doesn't confirm people's infirmities. He actually allows us to experience the remission of sins. Mm-hmm. Aphesis or afiimi in Greek is really to take something and throw it away. Mm-hmm. In the Psalms it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's not as far does he forgive us in his heart to justify letting us go to heaven when we die. He actually takes the sins away. He undoes the paralysis. Why is Jesus undoing so many paralyzed people in the scriptures, casting out demons and raising the dead? He is undoing the evil and the suffering and the poison of Satan in the fallen world. And Mm -hmm. he is bringing back to wholeness those things that have been taken hostage and hijacked Mm -hmm. by the sad conditions that we live in. This is really what it is. When the man is brought to him with the withered uh, body parts, the one who's paralyzed and on the mat, he says, so that you would know that the Son of Man has the authority, exousia, Mm -hmm. from God on earth, is afesin hamartion, for the remission of sins, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. And the man walked up and got away. Mm-hmm. So it is to show people not that he can forgive. He does not use the word synchoresis. Mm-hmm. He says, so that you would know that I have the authority to undo mm-hmm. the actual sin and all of the suffering and evil right. and the consequences that come with it. So then he undoes by the power of God the illnesses of the body to show that he has authority from God Mm -hmm. in order to undo all of the twistedness of sin in the human person. It's beautiful. Yeah, and that's that's reconciliation, right? Reconciliation isn't to say, oh, this happened and the mark is still there, but rather to say, let's get back to before the mark was there. Yes. Let's get back to this moment before the separation. Right, it's to take the two angry, divorced persons fighting in court and to say, like, we're going to try again. Mm -hmm. Let's go back and get remarried. Absolutely. And bring our children back together into one home and try to love each other the way we were not able to love the first time. Mm -hmm. Because in Orthodox teaching, pastorally, we consider Christ the mystical third person of every marriage. Mm that he is there as the glue that holds together in his love, the husband and the wife, and all of the hardships mm-hmm. and struggles of being a, a married and uh, having children. Well, I think we see that image 
in the Trinity itself. Right. You know, you see these God these the Father having His Son and His Spirit. Yes. And, and you know, I I imagine, um, you know, the the Rubelev icon of of the Holy Trinity. The angels, right? And they're sitting at a round table. Yes. You know, it's it's this beautiful motion between three. Is that, yeah. that that's how I imagine my marriage is? Yeah. We the. Peri the, it's the dancing yeah, together the of the three dance. persons. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. I, I imagine my marriage in the same way, is that we are sitting at a round table and there's this mystical third that is uh, coursing through us and uniting us and allowing us to be in this creative role and it, you know, of raising a family, of being a part of community. Um, if it's just two people... <coughs> Uh, you know, um, for those that listen to the show regularly, in the in the last episode I spoke with, or the episode before last week, it was we were talking about Buddhism, and we I, I mentioned that dualism leads to againstness, right? Leads mm-hmm. to violence. Mm-hmm. But when you add a third, it's it's no longer able to be dual. Right. And, and um, when there's that third person within a marriage or within any relationship. You can't be against the other because you're not sitting on a seesaw anymore, right? You're, right. you're instead sitting at a, at, a, at a round table, mm-hmm. and it makes it easier to to process disagreements mm-hmm. when it's we're not trying to balance right. on this on this, uh, you know, a scorecard, but rather we're looking at uh, this equality and, and this the relationship. We're putting it all on the mm-hmm. table and. and Saying how does this affect us, not how does this affect me. Um, so I, I love that that you mentioned that. It's it's all. I think all of Christian life is about reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the last question is just what are your favorite things about your faith? I know, um, but because I am a little obsessive, you know, like months ago read through the the St. Andrew's website um, and I, I saw that you had come into orthodoxy um, from the Catholic Church, correct? Right, as, as, a, as an adult in college. Yeah, and so um, in that process, I'm sure we have some similar uh, realizations just of, of it hitting your soul and, and speaking with you in a, mm. in a beautiful way. So what are a few of the things um, specifically with... Um, the Orthodox Church that kind of touched you and made this your home? I thought about this question a lot, and I was concerned that it might be one of the most difficult to answer honestly. <laughs> sure. um, because the temptation at the beginning, and I preface it by calling it a temptation, is to look at things that make me feel good. Sure. When I came into the Orthodox Church when I was in college, um, I was very, I'm young, I was attracted to things that were pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Most young people are attracted to things that give pleasure, mm-hmm. even sometimes over substance. Sure. Uh, in the understanding of the church, though, I was learning and confronted by the substance of Orthodox Christianity, but the first thing I fell in love with was the wrapping on the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, the liturgical music was the very first thing that drew me. Mm. 
especially in the Russian tradition. I, I came into the, the Orthodox Church in America, which was a, uh, as, a, as a daughter mission that became independent from the Russian Orthodox Church mm-hmm. in the year 1970. And I, I started there, you know, and I was attracted by the music, the vestments, the icons, the candles, the voluminous clouds of incense, the the beauty and splendor of earthly worship and majesty and having 40 voice choirs and, you know, all this, you know, all of these things that were extremely um, sensual is probably the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. It was... Like the beauty of the icons, the beauty of the music, the beauty of the vestments, the uh, the words of the services, and all of that, and that was my initial understanding and exposure to the church. For a long time, I noticed I was getting crusty mm-hmm. in my spirituality because what I was doing was trying to continue to recapture those earliest moments of looking at the bride in her youth and her glory mm-hmm. you know uh the bible says rejoice in the uh, wife of your youth a lovely hind and graceful doe uh it is it is good to do that but you got to remember that 30 40 50 years down the road you're still called to rejoice right. in the wife of your youth when the years have have changed and matured both her and you right. and the marriage as a whole and that much suffering has taken place that we truly continue our married lives through enormous amounts of sacrifice and martyrdom mm-hmm. and and letting go of selfish desires and interests right. you know and so in orthodoxy i was initially attracted the way a man is attracted to a, to an attractive woman mm-hmm. it was the exterior beauty and the externality and sensual uh, pleasure, if you will, of mm-hmm. these things that I did not have access to in my youth. Yeah, well, and, uh, that everything was like foreign, exotic, and fascinating. If well, you will, and, you know the bits of divine liturgy that I've seen and of the practicing of orthodoxy, it involves your whole person. You, you can't help but it does. But be uh, you can't help but have all of your senses engaged. That's right. You have no choice. (laughs) Right. But what happened over time is that things changed. Mm -hmm. I wound up in first the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese from the the churches of Syria Mm -hmm. uh, in the Middle East, and I passed through them in one parish into being in the Greek Archdiocese where I am now. And all of a sudden, everything that I had been so connected to mm-hmm. uh, began to change and to vanish and fall apart around me. And at some mm-hmm. point, I noticed I was trying awful hard to bring back the glory of the things that were no longer my lived daily experience, mm-hmm. that I was starting to look back with an almost romantic um, attitude towards things which were no longer true. Right. They were not, well, in the sense of like they weren't part of my daily life. The right. liturgy is a little different. The structure is different. The spirituality is different. The priestly ministry has radically changed my understanding of my own spirituality as a mm-hmm. person because now my whole life is to be expended for for uh, the love and uh, uh, healing of other people. Yeah, self-sacrificial that, entirely. And that means, among other things, much of what I had worshipped when I came into the Orthodox Church, had to go. 
God really asked me, did you become an Orthodox Christian or did you become a Russian or a, a Greek or an Antiochian or a Serbian? Or is, is it, did you join an ethnicity because it was attractive to you at a romantic uh, uh, exterior kind of uh, ephemeral level or did you actually put yourself in my hands? You know, mm. he told Peter, wow. when you were young, you girded yourself and went where you wished to go. Mm -hmm. When you get older, somebody else will take you and bind you and bring you someplace you do not wish to go. And mm -hmm. this, he said, to show by what manner of dying Peter would glorify God. This is really what it means when we have become a little bit older in, in the church is that it is the manner of dying by which we glorify God. Mm -hmm. And I have had to let go of many things in a very painful way that were the touchstones upon which I entered the Orthodox Church. Right. If you were to ask me just right now with no regard to the past what my favorite aspects of Orthodox Christianity sure. are, in reality it is no longer those things that I used to put all of my stock in. At this point, the most important thing to me is the presence of the grace and activity of the Holy Spirit, especially mm -hmm. in spiritual reading, in counsel, in working with people, in, mm -hmm. in the healing that comes from pastoral counseling and confession, uh, in helping people struggling through their problems. Uh, because in reality, it's encountering suffering and hardship and death and mm -hmm. pain and bitterness that, that I have seen myself and others truly come into a living relationship with God. So the things that matter most to me right now don't bring me a lot of pleasure sometimes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, nine-tenths of everything that I forward on Facebook is a quote from some father that's probably going to knock a person off their duff when they read it mm -hmm. because it's it's a sense of how much of a challenge the spiritual life is and the recognition of right. the people that have gone before us that the grace and the joy of the resurrection comes in addition to the cross mm -hmm. and that it is only in embracing my own personal suffering and my own personal dying mm -hmm. that I am going to be able to inherit the, the resurrection of Christ yes. and the kingly reign of God. Mm -hmm. So the things that actually speak to me, if you will, mm -hmm. are no longer the ones that say, oh, this is so pleasurable and it's so beautiful and just sit here and listen and all of this stuff. It's really about realizing when God is saying, I understand what you're going through and we are going to have to continue going through this together. I will help you and confirm for you that it is my will that you do this. Mm -hmm. wow. uh, because that is so much more meaningful than the sort of things that I used to uh, you know, love when I was younger. So in a sense, my favorite things now are the ones that when I am going through a personal hardship, I open a prayer book or a piece of spiritual literature from one of the saints and the place where my bookmark is happens to be the exact situation that I'm going through in my personal life yeah. <laughs> with directions that one of the saints gave another person who was having the same experience several hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is just what it means to be a Christian and to love God and to be crucified with Christ in a world that has stuffed its ears with cotton and no longer can hear the message. 
is, wow. you know, that's, I mean, that's really the answer to the question. It's not going to make anybody feel better. No. There's not no, right now, there's <laughs> no warm fuzzy that I can give anyone that is going to make them, uh, you know, want to become an Orthodox Christian. I, mm -hmm. I can say that for myself, it is seeing in the church, in its history, in its liturgy, in mm -hmm. scripture, and so on, the the life that I'm actually living, mm -hmm. being blessed by God, and leading through sufferings I don't want to have to endure yeah. in order for people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the real journey, mm -hmm. the loneliness, the darkness, the, the, the mountain climbing, mm -hmm. the, uh, all of those things that, that are part of the spiritual journey and warfare. Absolutely. That makes me think of, uh, of all things, Mary Poppins. It, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine yes, go down. down. That's right. right, it does. Yeah. So liturgy is like the spoonful of sugar that gets you the medicine that you need for healing right. and, and reconciliation. You have these uh, attractive, lovely things. I mean... That's right. I, I think, you know, liturgical music, especially that, like you, like you said, I love that you mentioned Russian music. I have a, a friend who's a band director, and he... Uh, texted me a couple days ago and said, hey, what do you know about Orthodox music? Uh, because I'm conducting a piece that's based on some Orthodox music, and um, he knows that I've probably listened to it. You know? So I sent him a couple uh, recordings of, of my favorite you know, selections of Orthodox mm -hmm. uh, music. There's some really great um, recordings of Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom uh, in the Byzantine tradition, and then well, so I, I love chant mm. and, and yes. the, the vocal, just these, this beautiful unison of people lifting up their voices. It, it is nothing but appealing, and, and mm. I think most people would agree. And the, the incense, the, the familiar and, you know, uh, unique smell uh, of, of the incense kind of, Harkening back all these memories of the times that you've prayed and extinguished mm. the candle, you know, and um, these familiar icons of your mother and, <laughs> and your brothers and sisters and um, fathers through the ages, that, that's the sugar mm. that we look at that gives us the ability to accept the, the medicine that, that is need. huge and this is a big issue about repentance and mm -hmm. change with people living lives that are just painfully uh, loaded and burdened down with sinful passions and inclinations mm -hmm. it is not enough to say God loves you just stay the way you are mm -hmm. and when you die you'll go into some magic uh, universe where everything is good and holy and true Jesus does the only thing that is worthy of God by saying that I'm going to give you a new order mm -hmm. and we're going to change it so that you don't have to stay that way wow. but you're going to have to trust me mm -hmm. and it's going to be a little bit of a challenge here and there yeah. but he makes it as attractive and beautiful a journey 
as possible. Mm -hmm. And he promises if you are willing to die with him in a death like his and to be buried with him in a burial like his for real, you will be raised with him in a resurrection like his and glorified with him at the right hand of the Father. Mm -hmm. This is the only thing we have to offer people that are suffering and struggling with the weight of their inherited ancestral uh, issues and genetic mm -hmm. predispositions and mm -hmm. all of these things that everybody talks about in the modern world and all the different kinds of hardship that we deal with. Mm -hmm. We don't ever sugarcoat anything in the sense of saying that, well, this is not a problem, you're fine. Right. Um, I don't say that to anybody. It's like we tell people the truth mm -hmm. and we say that this is the most loving thing that God could do is to attract you to himself right. because it isn't God fixing human nature. It's not God changing a person's interior disposition. It's not God pretending not to see our sins. It's not God fixing a, 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 an error like if we swear too much or if right. we're unhappy with something. God is not doing those things to us as a person. Mm -hmm. He is inviting us in as attractive and loving a way as possible to himself mm -hmm. and by becoming part of Christ in every sense of that word therefore we have access to the grace of God for healing and change and health mm. uh, what we call the healing and health of soul and body mm. it is only that attraction to the love and the, the mercy and grace and the beauty of God in Jesus and his face and his light revealed in the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John wanted to stay there forever and just mm -hmm. rejoice in the glow. That's become you know, one of my favorite feast days. <laughs> it, it is, it really is. That we have an answer for people that are suffering and struggling. Mm -hmm. It's like we're not going to change you. We're going to help you to become part of God in a way that allows for these things to be let go slowly uh, with patient effort and persistence mm -hmm. and prayer and fasting and the services. And God doesn't leave you starving and hungry and in the dark. Right. He gives us light. He feeds us with himself. He nourishes us with his own body, with his own blood, with his own fuel. Mm -hmm. You know, he makes it possible to undertake this journey. And we do it in the community of other people that are also trying to deal with their uh, sins and their hardships, their suffering, their failures, their incompleteness. Uh, and most of us don't really know no. what's going on inside yeah. of another person. No. Never we, can. we can't see uh, a lot of the pain and the suffering and the loneliness, but we can reach out to them and say, let's go to Christ together. Mm -hmm. And even though I may not know what is happening inside of you, I can accompany you Mm -hmm. while dealing with what's happening inside of me. And both of us are going to find something in that light that mm -hmm. we couldn't ever find if we chose to live in the darkness no. and in the cold and bitterness. Yeah, we're, we're is wrapping up beautifully because it's just like at the beginning, it's it's family. Mm. It's this That's right. familial and fraternal um, suffering with and walking with and loving with. You know, um, one of my favorite uh, spiritual writers is Thomas Merton, 
Mm -hmm. You know, he has a book, No Man is an Island, and that's an idea that's been around for a long time, but we are all connected to one another, Mm -hmm. and we live at the service of one another. We are served. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's this odd and beautiful divine paradox of this self-emptying yet filling. Yes. And that's wonderful. Well, Father, thank you so much um, for your time. I know we've we, we've gone for the long haul, but I appreciate that's fine. I appreciate your willingness. I'm glad we could do it. Um, for for the sake of of ending the recording, would you um, offer us some sort of of blessing? Our Father, who art in the heavens. May thy name be sanctified. May thy spirit come. May thy will be done as in heaven, so also upon the earth. Give us this day the bread of the future age. Remit our debts as we remit our debtors. Let us not enter into the time of trial, but deliver us from the power of the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Peace be with you, Father. And also with you. Thank you. All right, there you have episode five. A very special thank you again to my guest, Father Peter DeFonts. Um, Man, I had such a wonderful time uh, speaking about all kinds of, of, you know, inside baseball as far as the, uh, the church is concerned. So I hope that was that was exciting for some of you like i said at the beginning check us out online and um again uh please do rate and review the show on itunes i know it seems like it's a a silly little thing and most of the time you get those notifications on your phone you say i'll do it later um but that really does help the show out a lot that kind of helps push it up the uh up the list and maybe some other people might see it which would be super exciting for me and uh for everyone who is interested in kind of growing the show and engaging in different conversations. So again, thank you so much for listening and peace be with you. Mm